Good morning, church. Can I just say that you are a beautiful sight to see, even though the lights are bright, can still see um, see you. Um, I just wanted to share some things. Um, you may be most familiar with the idea of sabbatical from an academic context. A professor takes time away from instructing to work on research and publication. Some businesses offer paid or unpaid sabbatical leave as a perk of employment. The idea of pastoral sabbatical is also common, but perhaps a little fuzzier around the edges because it's less uniform and not standard procedure across denominations and church traditions. The word sabbatical comes from the word Sabbath. We know from Genesis that God rested on the seventh day and called his creation whole and expressed his satisfaction. He commanded and invited his people to observe a day of rest and also a day of celebration, a day to reflect on the wholeness, excellence, and glory of his mighty person and work. We know that it doesn't happen very naturally. Sabbathing is challenging. In January, we had the opportunity to try a different 24-hour Sabbath Sunday. Did you participate? Why or why not? If you did, how did it go? Was it easy and seamless? Was it messy? Did all family members cooperate? I'm guessing it will take practice to Sabbath in this way. It's not meant to be a singular event that we either pass or fail. Since we can understand how challenging it is to create space for quiet, reflection, prayer, rest, engagement, and scripture on our weekly lives, we can then understand that our leadership would benefit from protected time to reflect and celebrate what the Lord has done personally and in the life of Journey Church over the last seven years, and to ponder what and how the Lord is directing our church body in the years to come. And when you take into account the additional stress of the last two years and the impact we will see for years to come, a sabbatical seems especially appropriate. True rest comes when we cease striving and find peace and contentment in God and his provisions. Intentional rest with deliberate focus on God postures our hearts and lives to acknowledge God's sovereign control over us and our total dependence on him. Beginning last fall, Scott requested and the board approved a sabbatical for him this summer. He will be sharing more about that in weeks to come. This is an invitation for our church family as well. Sabbatical gives us, the church, an opportunity to practice relying on the Lord and on one another for church life instead of so much on Scott. One reflection from a pastor on the sabbatical process is that when leaders experience renewal, congregations are re-energized too. Things don't just return to normal when the leader returns. New patterns of leadership emerge. New vision sprouts up. The idea of sabbatical may bring up questions and insecurities like, why now? Is something wrong? For how long? 
What's the goal? Who will fill in? What in the world will we do without him? This is really normal. And we will try to appropriately listen and address your concerns. As a leadership board, we invite you into the process of supporting Scott during his preparation for sabbatical, his time away, and his re-entry. Commit to pray for the Eddingers. Write notes of encouragement and your reflections on your time at Journey Church. Ask the Lord how he wants to use you while they are away. And say yes when you hear him. Maybe this happens in the context of your small groups or within your family or among friends. As I've read repeatedly, the most successful sabbaticals are the ones where congregations are engaged and empowered to also reflect on God's sovereignty and provision and good work and discover how to passionately follow Jesus in a new season. Thank you. Well, let me just thank Christy and our leadership board. It, honestly, it, it's a very, um, it's a catch-22 in a lot of ways for me, the, the whole idea, because it's all I've known for the last seven years is, is being here Sunday after Sunday. So it'll take some adjusting to not be here on a Sunday and, or to just to be, not have some of the responsibilities. But what a, an honor. What, I'm so grateful for our, our leadership, and I'm really just grateful for, for all of you um, and your willingness to, to support this season and to support just the the work that the Lord's leading us um, into in, in the months ahead. And, and honestly, I was telling someone the other day, it's actually going to be really hard because I think while the last two years were very challenging at times, I don't know if I've been as excited about this church as I have been in the last two months. And so to step aside for a couple, a couple of months, and I'll still be around. I'm not going anywhere. Although I'll be in Rwanda for a handful of weeks, and we'll be doing some retreats and some study and some stuff. I'll be around but not around for a while. But uh, man, what a, what a great season of life this church is in, and we are in good hands um, physically, but really we're in the hands of the Lord, right? This is, this is not our church anyway. It's, it's his church, and we're just trusting him in, in this season and as we do in every season. So thank you for, again, to the leadership board and, and just for, again, as a church, you're willing to support, um, support this. So with that, let me invite uh, John Ratcliffe up who is another one of our, our leadership board members. Uh, John has been a part of Journey Church for, I don't know, six or so years. Uh, they, they came early on in the, in the start of the church, and um, he's spoken here before. And we're just excited for him to be able to help us continue to move through the gospel of John today. And before John begins, I just want to pray for you if, you, if that'd be cool. Lord, thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your faithfulness, your goodness, and your love, and how we can celebrate that every Sunday, but also every day. We thank you for your word and the, the work that John has put into um, preparing it for us today. And we, wait, we thank you for the ways you have prepared it in him. And we ask that you would just open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts to hear from you today, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Scott. It's, it's a real privilege and a blessing to be able to be here this morning with you and share. Um, yeah, so good morning. Um, who here has heard of somebody named Billy Graham? Does anybody know who that is? Okay, a few of you do. Um, I grew up in rural Georgia, and back in the early 90s, um, he came to Atlanta, and um, it was a really big deal because, I mean, we hadn't, none of us had ever seen him. So a group from my church went to this event to hear Billy Graham speak. 
I was really, really excited about this. Not so much for Billy Graham, but because DC Talk was playing at this. That, that, this was my first like real concert for a band that I liked. That it wasn't just my parents' thing. So it was really exciting. So we drove to Atlanta. We, we went to this show. We, we saw DC Talk. We heard Billy Graham preach. There was this really awesome altar call. It was a great experience. And so afterwards, it's late, um, we're, we're tired, we're, we're, we're out, and we've got a two-hour drive to get home. And so we're like, hey, let's stop and get some dinner first. So we go to one of those outdoor burger places, and this is fall, so it's kind of cold too. But, um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of a good cheeseburger. That's just a great meal. But for a cheeseburger, you've got to have the cheeseburger, the fries, and then a nice cold Coke. Like, the three of those, that's just, for me, that's just a little taste of heaven right there. So I'm waiting for my food, and um, all I'm thinking about is, is I really cannot wait to have all three of those things. I, I just, it's going to be great. And I'm tired, again, you know, cold, just waiting. They call my number. I walk up to the counter, and they hand me a bag. And to be honest, my anxiety kind of went up a little bit then, because I'm like, wait a minute, there's a bag, but... but you're missing the third thing there. You're missing the drink. So I said, you know, where's my Coke? And the person just looked at me, and they kind of had a weird expression because I didn't say, where's my Coke? I said, hey, where's my Coke? Because I'm holding it right there. <laughs> um, so, and, and um, yeah, you know, sometimes we just tunnel vision, right? Like there's something we really want, we're really excited about or, or just really caring about, and we totally miss the fact that we're, now, depending on who you ask, I may have been drinking from it. I disagree with that. I, whatever. This morning, John wants to remind us that sometimes we get so focused on our lives that we can lose sight of Jesus. Sometimes the things we care about, our priorities, the things we're so wrapped up in, they can um, cause us to miss out on this life that Jesus offers. And John wants to remind us that Jesus came to die to bring salvation, to bring life. But to know this life, we also have to die. So can you turn with me to John chapter 12? We're going to be starting in John chapter 12. So up to this point in John, um, John's been talking a whole lot about this seventh and great sign that Jesus did. He rose Lazarus from the dead. And John's been reflecting on the fallout of this. On the one hand, there's these crowds that are just super excited. They saw what happened, they've seen Lazarus, and they're telling everybody about this miracle. But on the other hand, the Pharisees are more determined than ever to stop Jesus. They want this movement to come to an end. They're plotting to kill Jesus. They're even talking about trying to kill Lazarus. They just want this to stop. But before John tells us about this triumphal entry, he told us about this really great story that Olivia preached on last week about Mary making this amazing sacrifice to prepare Jesus for his coming death and burial. So we're picking up the story now, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. 
The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone out after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is a really, really exciting time. Passover is here. And like Scott was saying, this was such an important moment, an important feast for the Jewish people. Historians tell us that Jerusalem may have had normally around 100,000 people living in it. But during Passover, that would grow to almost a million of people just all over the region traveling there to celebrate this great feast. And like Scott said, this is a feast that was celebrating how Yahweh had saved Israel from slavery in Egypt. It was about their history. It was about their identity. But the problem is, is that the people hadn't been living in that. They'd been living in exile for almost 600 years. Um, Israel had broken Yahweh's covenant, had been unfaithful, and so they were, they were sent into exile. And now in Jesus' time, the Jews are living back in, in Israel again. They're living back in that area, but they're still, they don't have a king. They, they're still living under Roman rule, and God's presence just seems very far. So for, Sabbath, for, for Passover, um, it would have a double meaning. It's exciting because they can remember what God has done, but there's lots of anticipation because they're also thinking of what God is going to do. And in the midst of all of this, this commotion, all of this excitement and energy happening, there's these stories going around about Jesus raising someone from the dead. And so as he's coming to Jerusalem, everyone's saying, what's he going to do? What's going to happen? So a large crowd goes out to meet him. And this practice of a crowd going out, that was actually a very familiar thing in the ancient world. Um, Whenever a dignitary or a king would return to the city, the crowds would go out to meet him and greet him and celebrate his return to the city. And that's what they're doing here for Jesus. But they're doing something different because they're also waving these palm branches. And it wasn't just because it's a nice, cool spring thing to do. Uh, Palm branch had a very specific meaning for, for Jews in that time. You see, in their recent history... Um, there had been several attempts to um, overthrow Romans and and gain their independence. And in one such revolt, the Maccabean Revolt, they actually gained some limited, unfortunately temporary, success at that. But palm branches were a huge symbol during that revolt. They were a symbol of Yahweh, um, excuse me, they were a symbol of the hope that Yahweh would restore the kingdom of Israel. And it was such an important symbol, they even printed it on their currency to remind them of this hope. So this is why the crowd's shouting Hosanna, because it means save us now. So their intent is clear. They're celebrating Jesus as king, but they're expecting him to come and reestablish Israel. It's about having a king come and save them again. But the the, the challenge is, this is really exciting welcome of Jesus. They're they're, they're crying out, he's king and all that. But the challenge is, in a few days, why is it there's going to be a different crowd saying crucify him? Potentially, some of the same people right now that are celebrating him as king in just a few days are going to say he should die. Why does this happen? Well, first we need to remember that this isn't the first time a crowd has tried to make him king. It's happened several times, and when it does happen, Jesus always stopped it or evaded it. But here he seems to be embracing it, and he's doing it by riding in on a donkey. And a donkey was a common sight in that time. Um, Donkeys were used as a beast of burden, but they were also used for the wealthy, for merchants, and even for royalty to ride on. So it wouldn't have been unexpected for him to be riding on a donkey. One commentator said that um, you could describe them as the Mercedes-Benz of the biblical world. (laughs) 
But it's, it's still kind of odd because if he's going to be a king who's going to come and reestablish Israel, that's not what you would expect. And John even points out here that the disciples really didn't understand what was going on um, until after his resurrection. But John quotes from Zechariah 9, and we're going to read Zechariah 9. It's, it's a bit of a long passage, but it's this really beautiful poem where Zechariah is, is talking about Yahweh's coming king. So Zechariah 9, I think it should be up on the screen, uh, goes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So this really beautiful poem that Zechariah had about this future king, it's just packed full of messianic symbolism. But real briefly, we'll just touch on a couple things. He mentions this king is going to bring salvation, that he's righteous, and that he's ruling over the whole world. But there's also something special about this king. He's got an authority that's really unique because he's bringing peace to the whole world. And it's unique because it's not just because, I mean, a king can bring peace. That's not unusual. But when a king brings peace, he has to have an army to keep it. But what's unique about this king is he doesn't have an army. He doesn't have soldiers. He doesn't even have weapons. He's destroying all the weapons that were there. And so Zechariah says this king is humble and meek. Or sorry, humble and riding on a donkey. And I don't think he means this is a meek king. After all, you can't conquer the whole world and bring peace and be meek. But he is saying he's a different kind of king because he's not a king with an army. He's riding on um, a common donkey rather than riding in on a war horse. He doesn't have an army with him or soldiers or anything like that. He's a king of peace and a king of authority. He's bringing salvation and he's renewing Yahweh's covenant. So Jesus is riding on this donkey to indicate the kind of king he's going to be. He is the promised king. He is bringing salvation But the people are expecting a warrior who's going to reestablish the nation. And I think this is why, in just a few days, this enthusiasm we see on Palm Sunday is going to be gone. Because as soon as he enters Jerusalem, he does Zechariah 9 things. He doesn't do warrior king things. So the crowd's mistake is, their desire to have a nation of Israel restored is getting in the way of them believing in Jesus. This is why later in the same chapter, John's going to tell us the crowd didn't even really believe. They're making this amazing proclamation that Jesus is king, but they don't really believe. They're focused on what they want God to do, and they're missing what God is doing. So John places this right after Mary on purpose. I think he wants us to compare the crowd and Mary. The crowd has their agenda. They have this purpose they want Jesus to do, whereas Mary just worshiped Jesus. She just believed and sat at his foot and No matter the cost, she was there. So the question is, how do we avoid making the mistake the crowd is making, and how do we instead follow Mary's example? And John's answer is that we need to follow Jesus, and we need to die. So we're going to keep reading in verse 20 of John chapter 12. Now among those who went up to the worship at the feast were some Greeks. They They came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, 
the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of seed, sorry, a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. So after this great entry of Jesus, some Greeks come to see Jesus. They want to talk to him. And they're coming for Passover, which means that they, they're converts to Judaism. And it's kind of a weird interaction because Jesus doesn't really respond to them. But what he says is really important. He says, the hour has come. Now, up to this point in John, the hour has been something that's been in the future. There's this great point of salvation that's going to be coming, and it's right around the corner. So Jesus will say things like, the hour has not yet come, or the hour is near. But now the hour is here. And it's interesting, the, the sequence here, right? Because like the Pharisees, commenting very sarcastically on the crowds, are saying, it's like the whole world's going after him. And then the very next scene, you have the world coming to him. You have these Gentiles coming to speak to Jesus. And I think the image is, to give us the effect of, as Jesus' ministry is coming to a close, as the hour of his death and his resurrection is here, as the hour of salvation is coming, the world is sitting at his doorstep waiting. It's, as it, it's, it's pointing forward, I think, to the church of worldwide salvation is about to happen. And while some people are caught up in kind of what they want Jesus to do, there's other people that are like Mary that are just waiting and waiting for the salvation and excited. So it's kind of a cool contrast. But Jesus continues by explaining why he has to die. And he gives this analogy of a grain of wheat. Um, it seems like a pretty simple analogy, right? A, a seed has to fall on the ground, has to die in order to produce life. And I think the point is simple enough that this is what Jesus is about to do. His purpose for coming is to die. His purpose to die is so that he can produce life for all who believe. So the fruit of his death is why he's here. It's eternal life. But Jesus continues, for people to receive this life, to receive the fruit of his death, they must follow him in his death. So Jesus gives this really interesting um, comparison. He talks about those who love their life versus those who hate their life. And he's contrasting two responses to him. Um, loving life is our natural state, right? We're, we're born with just an inherent self-interest. We live for ourselves. We very naturally want to seek our own happiness, our well-being, our comfort. Um, it's, been, it's an amazing thing about having kids is you, you, get this, you have this amazing, beautiful gift of a child, and almost from day one you realize you've just birthed another narcissist into this world. Like, everything about them, it, you're spending almost their entire childhood trying to get that out of them. Like, it's just... My girls are now four, six, and nine. And as you can imagine, we have a lot of fights in the house daily, sometimes almost every hour. And for those who've been around little kids, can you imagine what the most popular three words are we hear, the three-word phrase? It's not fair. Yeah. All the time, it's not fair. But the interesting thing about it is it's never, they never say that when the benefit is for them. They never say, hey, I got this amazing thing, but my sister didn't get it. That's not fair. Right? It's the opposite. It's, she got that. Why didn't I get it? So it's a natural thing. We, we, we care about ourselves. And this is what Jesus is calling loving your life. But there's a paradox, because when we love our life, 
Jesus says we, we die and we don't receive his life. In contrast is the person who hates their life. And when you say hate life, it, you can think right away we're talking about like some kind of self-hatred or some kind of really nasty thing. And that's not what he's meaning. It's, it, the language is just meaning the opposite of the first one. So instead of um, loving your life, it's a person who maybe denies their life. Instead of a person who lives for themselves, he's talking about a person who lives for Jesus. And it's this person who receives eternal life. So that's the first part of um, what it means to um, receive his life. It's this internal, um, what we're living for. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues and he talks about how there's an external component too. That receiving life is about following him. It's how we act. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, my servant will be also. And as followers of Jesus, we need to follow him. We need to pattern our life after him. We need to actually act and live like him. So believing in Jesus isn't just a spiritual thing, but it means that we're willing to give up and live, live like him up to and including being willing to die just as he will die. This is why in Matthew 16, Jesus makes a very similar statement. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So this person who hates their life, this person who's following Jesus, it means a level of commitment that we're willing to give up all that we are to follow him. And I think that, that Jesus' language here, he's, he's meaning that when we follow him, we follow him in his death. Jesus has to die to produce life so that we can know it. But in a very real way, we also need to die to be able to know his life. And this is a common theme all through the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Like a really popular common verse would be Romans 6, 4. Um, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So true belief involves letting go of all that we care for, letting go of our identity and our priorities. I love the way John Mark Comer summed this up. He said, For Jesus, the cross is the entry point into the life to the full of the kingdom. It is how we step into life. We die. So the question is, why, why does this have to be that way, though? Why do we have to die? I think first and foremost, it's because Jesus wants to be king over our whole life. Like that's the whole theme of the triumphal entry, right? We're celebrating Jesus as king. Well, Jesus wants to be king over our life. But we don't, I don't think most of us have a very good category for what it means to live under a king. Like, most of us are living here in America in a Western representative democracy. We're used to having a president or a congressperson or elected officials. But that's not how it's like living under a king. There's no separation of powers. There's no process of an appeal. With a king, it's his way or it's his sword. And so I think that when we're trying to follow Jesus, but we're also still trying to live for ourselves, it means we're trying to exert control. Um, and... That makes sense because, I mean, in our culture, we, we love, uh, autonomy is probably one of the highest things in our culture. But Jesus doesn't want to be our co-leader. As my parents used to say, this isn't a democracy. <laughs> he wants to be our king, and he wants to be king over our whole life. 
So that's the first reason. I think it's the most important reason why we have to die. But the second is, because when we live for ourselves, that actually hinders us from following Jesus. When we're, we're living for ourselves and we're loving our life, that means we're pursuing things like wealth or status or comfort, but these never satisfy us, right? Like the more you have of it, the more you want. The more we seek it, we never have enough. When we find something, it's short-lived. And when we have something, we work so hard just to even keep it. So when we're living for ourselves and we're loving our life, that means we're, we're in many ways being consumed by it, right? Like it takes over our energy and our time, our resources. And so that the more we're doing that, well, the less we have for Jesus. So it distracts us. Thomas Akempis says, to the degree that a man is drawn to exterior things, to that degree he becomes distracted and is thus hindered in the pursuit of the interior life. I think another way we could put this is, the more we live for ourselves, the easier it is for us to slip into spiritual apathy. And honestly, sometimes that could even just mean the more just unbelief. So that's the second reason why we need to die. And the third is because living for ourselves, it often means we aren't trusting in Jesus. For, some of it, for a lot of us, I suspect this can be a very subtle thing. But when we're thinking about the things in our life and we're thinking, well, I mean, being a good parent, that's not a bad thing. It's good to be a good parent, right? Um, there's nothing wrong with um, having a house or taking a great vacation. There's nothing wrong with trying to be healthy and enjoying life. And that's true. But the problem is, when we do these things and they're not surrendered to Jesus, then they become something that needs to die. But I suspect for some of us, we go even a step further, though. And we start to believe these things we want in life are actually what Jesus wants and are his priorities. What I mean is we might think something like, well, Jesus wants me to be financially stable. Or Jesus' kingdom is really about me remaining comfortable. But the sad truth is, the Bible never promises that this side of eternity, our lives are going to be easy. Following Jesus is a hard path. And in the history of the church, when we see people who have really demonstrated true faith, their lives are often characterized by pain, poverty, hunger, and death. Reflecting on this, John Mark Comer says, why is it we resist crucifying our desires? It's because we're scared. We're scared of losing something we value, something we think or feel we need to live a happy life. How often do we say, if not in word, then by our actions, not this Jesus, not this. So I think a lot of times we live for ourselves because we aren't ready to trust Jesus with the outcomes We're afraid that if we give something over to him, that his way and his solution might break this thing that we care so much about. And honestly, that's legitimate, right? Because we know from scripture, we know from the history of church, like when God moves, what he does looks different than what we think. His answers are different than our answers. And so there's no guarantee that if we trust him with something that we really care about, that he's going to do with that what we would want him to do. But we need to be a people who have such a deep trust that we're even willing to let go of those things. Those things that we might say, not this Jesus, we have to let them die. And we have to believe that his way is better. 
So yeah, this, the truth is, this is all really hard. This is not an easy task. Um, whether you're new to the faith, whether you've been a believer for a long time, this is such a hard thing to do. And surrendering like this, I mean, it, especially those things we care the most about, it can feel like dying. And unfortunately, it's something we have to do every day. Um, C.S. Lewis said, the real problem of the Christian life comes the very moment you wake up in each morning. All your wishes and hopes of the day rush at you like wild animals, and the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back, letting that other, larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we die in this way? How do we live for Jesus and, and surrender these things? And so just being completely honest here, um, I'm not somebody who's had a lot of success here. So I'm not like the poster child of how to do this. Um, I'm really grateful, to be honest, that I got to study this for the last few weeks because it's been a real challenge for me. It's been an area where um, the Word of God has really just revealed some, some, er- some great need for growth in my life. But, so I'd humbly like to offer three steps that I think we can do to, to better um, live for Jesus. The first is we need to identify where we need to let go and where we need to die. Where are we living for ourselves? Where are we acting like the crowds and trying to use Jesus as a means to an end? What consumes our time, energy, and resources? What do we worry about? And where do we say anything but this Jesus? Anything but this. For me, the two big ones for me, um, the first is my comfort. Um, I'm so grateful that Scott has been encouraging us to um, participate in the season of Lent. Um, But things like fasting, like even missing just one meal, and it's always surprising to me just how fast my entire body and my mind just laser focus on the fact that I'm hungry. And it's, it's miserable, like, because I so desperately want to remain comfortable. And just one meal is enough to, to, to do that. But the other one for me, the one that, that I know I've prayed that anything but this Jesus is with my kids. Um, I think more than anything in the world, the thing I want the most is for my kids to grow up and be good, healthy, wise, and happy people who love Jesus. And that's a hard thing to let go of. So first step is we need to identify those things. The second step is we need to practice surrender. We need to begin to move from living for ourselves to living for Jesus. I think a big piece of this is to pray for the Spirit just to help us let go. Because we need to be able to get to a place where we can echo Jesus' words in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. And honestly, if you can't pray that, if if you're struggling with that, that's okay. Instead, pray that the Spirit will give you the faith and the trust to be able to make that prayer. And it's really important to stress that this, this, this beginning to die, this beginning to follow Jesus with these, these things we will hold on to, um, it's not just an absence of ourself. Like, it's really popular in our culture to talk about, like, emptying ourselves and living selflessly and all that. And this isn't quite the same thing. Because we're not just dying to ourself, but we're replacing that with trust in Jesus. It's replacing it with a trust. It's a deep and profound belief that Jesus' way is better, no matter the outcome. That those things that we say, anything but this, we can now say, 
even if it doesn't work out the way I want to, I still trust and follow you. So that's the second step. The third step is to take an actual step of faith. To turn this surrender into some kind of tangible action. As followers of Jesus, we need to follow him and we need to trust him in our actions. So we can pray for the Spirit to show us ways to take that step. What needs to happen so that we can practice trust and surrender in our life? Um, this could mean having to change something about your life, especially if this area you're holding on to involves sin. It may need, mean needing to remove something altogether. But I think it can also simply mean just changing how we think and approach something. Uh, for example, um, I said my kids are my, one of my hardest ones. I'm not getting rid of my kids. Like, that's not an option. But what I can do is I can change the way I see them. Instead of seeing them as my possession that I want so desperately for great things to happen to, is to say, these are God's children, and I'm just a steward, and I'm here to try to show them as much as I can about Jesus. Um, I think another thing that can be really helpful for taking this step of faith is um, practicing spiritual disciplines. Um, sometimes I think we can perceive spiritual disciplines as being kind of like this meritorious thing or these kind of weird ancient things, but they really are a tried and true way of beginning to exercise our souls and our minds so that we can, we can develop deeper surrender and trust to Jesus in our life. So one thing I really appreciate is, is even though it's been miserable, is trying to practice fasting during Lent. Um, that's been something that's been really helpful because my, my comfort is really important to me. And giving that up physically by take, missing a couple of meals and trying to spend that time in prayer has been super, super helpful. So we need to take a step of faith. And we're, we're doing this not to solve the problem. It's just so easy to take that, that self-focus and just turn it towards, okay, well, I'm going to solve this problem for Jesus. We're taking a step of faith and we're trying to practice trust in Jesus with our life so that we can know his life. So the reason for all of this, right, the reason for, for the why we need to die like this is so that we can know his eternal life. This is why we're celebrating this morning. Where we're at in John's story is actually a really sad and dark moment. But we're still celebrating today because we know at the beginning of Holy Week, we know how this week will end. We know that even though death and suffering are the story of this week, this week ends with resurrection and life. And that's our hope. We know that as we surrender to Jesus, as we live for him, that we will begin to know his eternal life. Eternal life is not just something about the future. Eternal life is a, a state, a quality of life that we can have today. And it's something that we can know because in the future we'll know resurrection, but at the cross, Jesus defeated death and sin, and we can experience that freedom today. So it's a joy and a peace that exceeds all of our normal categories. It's something beyond our understanding, and it's lasting and it can endure even the worst circumstances. C.S. Lewis said, Submit every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. But look to Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. 
And Thomas Kempis says, What man enjoys greater rest than the one whose sight is always directed to God? Who has greater freedom than the man who desires nothing on earth? So let us be people who truly believe in Jesus. Let's see Jesus as king in our life and surrender all of ourselves, all of our desires to him. And let's know his life because that's what we're living for. When we believe in Jesus for who he is and follow him in his death, then we can know true life. Let's pray. King Jesus, we thank you for today. We just thank you for the gift of being able to gather and worship you. And Lord, I just pray that you will help us just to remember and keep our eyes focused on you, the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith, and you endured the cross because of the joy set before you. Lord, just please help us to better follow you. Show us where we need to surrender and help us trust you in a deeper way. Replace our selfishness and self-interest with your life and fill us with your joy and peace. In your name, Lord. As John was sharing from the word of God this morning, the the word that came to my mind was, was tension. I sensed a lot of tension in my own heart as I heard Christ's call to die in order to enter into new life. A tension when I, when I see my Savior ride in on, on a donkey's back being shout, shouts of Hosanna, who I know will die in, on a, in a week from now on the cross. And my invitation to you and to myself is to, is to step into that tension this week, to step and walk with Jesus in that tension towards Good Friday, and I encourage you, whether or not you can come and join us on the Good Friday service, don't ignore Good Friday. Like, sit with Good Friday for a moment, and and in silence on Saturday as we wait to celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. There's significance in this week that I know for myself, I've I've often ignored and just got caught up in in the day-to-day, and Friday just becomes Friday. It's like pizza night. Don't don't let it become just simply pizza night. Don't let Saturday just become another day of work in the yard. Like pay attention. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Step into that tension and walk in the tension of Jesus as you walk with him towards the cross and towards the resurrection life that he has for you and for me and for all our friends and family that aren't in, aren't in here with us today. So join us next Sunday. We'll be at the Water Oasis. It's going to be fantastic. The weather's going to be beautiful, I promise. I just said it out loud. And some people are just like, why did you just say that? <laughs> But we're going to have a great time. There's going to be songs. There'll be activity bags for the kids. There'll be donuts for those that, that want them afterwards. It, it will be a beautiful day. We hope you can make it. Otherwise, have a great afternoon. We'll see you uh, as soon as we can. Have a good night.